This is not the media. This is hell. Look, burning wood causes climate change. Everyone knows that, right? When you light wood on fire, it produces carbon dioxide, which causes global warming. As an article at InsideClimateNews.com reported last year, wood smoke contains a diverse mix of pollutants that can harm people's health. Carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, volatile organic compounds such as benzene and formaldehyde, and copious amounts of sooty fine particles called black carbon that can penetrate deep into the lungs and cross into the bloodstream. And then there's the climate problem. Living trees absorb planet-warming carbon dioxide and store it, but once trees are cut down and burned, that carbon is released. So, burning trees is not good for anyone, especially not the climate of the planet or the people living on it. Which makes you wonder, how did wood become a renewable energy source, the kind of clean energy that the EU requires? And why is the U.S. doing everything it can to fulfill that demand for wood pellets, clearing, clear-cutting forests and building massive infrastructure to support this booming and burning industry in the face of climate change? We'll find out how the hell tearing down forests and burning wood, which causes climate change, became environmentally sound in a few when we speak with attorney and geographer Danielle Purifoy, who wrote the two-part Scalawag magazine series, Knock on Wood, How Europe's Wood Pellet Appetite Fuels Environmental Racism in the South, and As the Wood Pellet Industry Grows Across the South, and Viva targets Alabama and Mississippi for future expansion. Danielle is a black queer lawyer and geographer at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is the race and place editor at Scalawag, a magazine devoted to Southern politics and culture. Danielle is the board chair at the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. You can find out more about the network at ncejn.org. You can follow Danielle on Twitter at Danielle Purifoy. And you can find out more about Danielle at daniellepurifoy.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Murphy. Producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for this our listeners? This week's question from hell, courtesy of new producer Daphne, is what will fall along with the autumn leaves? What will fall along with the autumn leaves? And the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt and all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show. After Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. And during this week's moment, Jeff shows up with the conclusion of his spiel on class consciousness. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's Question Hell following our guest. Again, our Question Hell is what else will fall with the autumn leaves? Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. We got some emails overnight that I want to touch on before we get to Danielle. Alex, uh, we uh, we got an email from John who writes, Hope things are well. Just curious, are you planning to have a guest on to talk about the election results in Bolivia? Uh, I, have we booked somebody? Are you going to be mentioning that at the end of today's show? Did we book somebody for Bolivia next no, I'm week? I'm working for next week. We actually have a book on Bolivia. We're talking with... Uh we're talking with an author about their book, uh, Brett Gustafson, talking about his book, Bolivia in the Age of Gas. And that is going to be on Wednesday. But I don't know if we have an author to talk directly about the election results. But I'm, I'm sure it'll I'm 
come up in that conversation. I'm looking for something for next week. Okay, cool. So John says, anyways, if you don't already have somebody in mind, uh, would you be interested in talking to Lupe Andrade again? Take care, John. Lupe was on our show back in 2015 to tell her story about going from being a journalist to being a mayor to being a whistleblower to being a political prisoner directly across the street from the president's mansion in Bolivia. But Alex is already working on it. We've already got some leads. Thank you, John. We really appreciate it. We've got some other ideas that we're working on right now. Ideas we've gotten from Brian Muir, from Lucas Kerner. So thank you, John, for reminding us. We got another email early this morning from another John who writes, Do have at least another two hours of interviews with Rob Wallace. Rob was on Tuesday's show this week to talk about his new book, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. And again, I have to stress, get the book. You know how the book is always better than the movie? The book is also always better than the interview, and Rob's book is a collection of essays he has written during the pandemic, and they are all must-reads. Keeping in mind that Rob is in Minnesota, and the area is awash in Scandinavian culture. After Tuesday's talk with Rob, I, I posted the interview on my timeline, and I tagged Rob, writing, Bummed I didn't get to ask you this question. Juntelugen is the Swedish ideal of putting society ahead of the individual, not boasting about individual accomplishments and not being jealous of others, which comes from the 1933 novel A Fugitive Crosses His Tracks by the author Axel Sandemos. Can Juntelugen, this is the question I wanted to pose to Rob and I didn't get a chance to, can Juntelugen save us from climate change and pandemics? Rob replied, ha, yes, not when it's deployed Minnesota style to keep a society from evolving. The white power structure here excels exactly that kind of mind effery. Upset at liberal white supremacy here? That's not nice. So Minnesotans have twisted the idea of putting society ahead of the individual, not boasting about individual accomplishments, and not being jealous of others into it's rude to be critical of white supremacy? Yep, that sounds about right here in the U.S. of A., Coming up, wood pellets are destroying the environment, communities, and lives. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff shows up with the conclusion of his spiel on class consciousness. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Al, which is, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Al gets our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Al at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have it by the end of the show today when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Burning wood creates climate change. Yet somehow Europe is importing wood pellets from the United States in order to meet their new climate change fighting standards on using renewable resources, even if those renewable resources contribute to, again, climate change. Here to help us understand exactly how a new carbon dioxide emitting energy industry has emerged despite climate change already happening, Attorney and geographer Danielle Purifoy wrote the two-part Scalawag magazine series Knock on Wood, How Europe's Wood Pellet Appetite Fuels Environmental Racism in the South. And as the wood pellet industry grows across the South, and Viva targets Alabama and Mississippi for a future expansion. Welcome to This is Hell, Danielle. 
Thank you, Chuck. It's good to be here. You can follow Danielle on Twitter at Danielle Purifoy, and you can find out more about Danielle at DaniellePurifoy.com. The story was published in partnership with Southerly and Environmental Health News for their Powerline series, which looks at climate change, justice, and infrastructure in the American South. The series is supported by the Temple Hoyne Well Center for the Study of American Architecture at Columbia University and is part of their Power project. So now that I've got that disclaimer out of, out of the way, uh, Danielle, you write in 2013 when Inviva Biomass opened a new plant near Belinda Joyner's community in Northampton County, North Carolina. She already knew what to expect. As the Northeast organizer for clean water for North Carolina, she'd met with residents of a small majority black town called Ahoski, uh, 40 miles from her home. Inviva had built its first North Carolina plant there two years before. The corporation which manufactures wood pellets as a purportedly renewable alternative to coal did what most industries do in prospective communities. They promise jobs, economic development, and minimal impacts. Before we get to what happened to the community, how is how are wood pellets an alternative to coal? And more importantly, how much of an alternative to coal is it? Because when we have heard about these cleaner transition fuels in the past, they end up being things like liquefied natural gas, which is still a fossil fuel and is often extracted through the environmentally devastating practice of fracking. So how are pellets an alternative and how much are they an alternative to carbon emitting fossil fuels, which cause climate change? Well, Chuck, uh, what I'll say is that from um, from my reporting, it doesn't seem like it's much of an alternative at all. Um, I think all of this really started back in 2009 um, when the EU, um, which then included the UK, um, the United Kingdom, um, really set some uh, target goals for 2020. So they were, uh, first of all, to reduce um, their um, greenhouse gas emissions by 20% from 1990 levels by 2020, and then increase by 20% um, their uh, uh, use, use of renewable energy um, uh, by 2020. And um, around that time, uh, you know, in 2009, the wood pellet industry was really um, kind of a pretty small industry. Um, you know, people have been using wood pellets for home fuel uh, forever, right? Just like they use, um, you know, wood in your fireplace. Um, uh, but um, it had not really ever reached this kind of scale of being used as a utility. And from my understanding, I, I spoke with um, Kenneth Richter, who is a um, Germany-based um, uh, environmental consultant uh, for the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, for those who are more familiar with the acronym. And what he said, um, I asked precisely this question, kind of how did this happen? And he said that around that time, um, the EU was really scrambling to figure out how they were going to meet this really stringent target by 2020. And the Scandinavian countries um, really, you know, had been using wood pellets for a very long time and decided um, on that as one part of their feedstock. I think this is just one part of the story that I've heard. Um, and um, the very least, how they were doing the carbon accounting, which I can go into a bit later, um, made it so that it appeared, right, that they... Um, were you know on their way to meeting those targets, um, but you know the rest of the EU and uh, the UK had not 
didn't have that kind of resource, that kind of forest resource. And so they started, um, yeah, targeting the Southeast United States in particular, Canada, um, some other Vietnam um, at this point sort of expanded um, to import wood pellets um, in order to meet that goal. Um, and my also my understanding was that the science um, around um, how wood pellets fared in comparison to coal wasn't very um, wasn't very strong yet. Um, so uh, in the kind of ensuing right 10, 11 years, we've seen um, the science increasingly um, show us that uh, wood pellets, um, at least at the point of combustion, uh, produce more carbon um, emissions than coal, even though they um, essentially uh, produce uh, less energy per unit than coal. And then there are a whole host of other um, climate uh, altering issues about uh, connected to deforestation and transport and the actual um, manufacturing of the wood pellets themselves. So you write, even if the EU has met its 2020 climate goals, the region claims to have already reduced emissions by 23.2% in 2018, the use of wood pellets raises important questions about the EU's carbon accounting and even more questions about public health and climate consequences for the U.S. South, which is already bearing the brunt of climate change effects. So is Europe fixing their climate by hurting Hours because I don't think that's how the climate works. It doesn't know borders. I don't, this is so confusing to me. Is Europe simply, uh, in order to meet their climate change regulations and their requirements and their standards, are they hurting our environment? Are they undermining the efforts to fight any, any efforts to fight climate change here in the United States? I would say yes. And I think, um, part of, um, I think, you know, I can't speculate on the EU's um, calculation with regard to the United States. I think that um, it's really an example of how, um, yeah, atomized and kind of individualistic, right, some of these efforts have become around climate change, where you think that um, importing a renewable, a purportedly renewable fuel from someplace else, uh, or deforesting um, that place somehow um, helps uh, helps your, your region, right, of the world in the long run when we live on the same planet. Um, I think some part of this had to do with this uh, carbon accounting um, issue that I think is um, challenging. So this idea that, um, that, you know, so long as a place like the United States is accounting for um, the carbon storage loss, right, from deforestation and sort of keeping up metrics on their end, um, and the EU is sort of keeping up metrics on their end, then we have some sort of net benefit. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't seem like that's the way the not not only the way the science works, but it doesn't make a whole lot of um, common sense either. So for one, um, what ends up happening uh, in the EU, um, in the UK, is that um, there's this disconnect between the um, land use change policies. So what happens when, for instance, forests are cut down and their energy policies. Um, so the idea is that, you know, they cut down, let's say they're cutting down their own forests. Um, they cut down their forests and they say, oh, well, we've accounted for the carbon storage loss from deforestation. Um, so we don't need to count 
um, the carbon or greenhouse gas emissions uh, when we actually burn these same trees uh, for fuel, right? Um, that's a problem because um, as Kenneth Richter told me, um, you know, there's a there's a, a a threshold that you have to meet in order to even start counting um, carbon for the forest that you cut down. Um, so you're not even really doing a full accounting when you're doing land use change um, accounting for for um, greenhouse gases or carbon um, storage. Um, but the bigger issue is that when you import, uh, when, you know, several European nations import wood pellets from other countries, um, there is no land use change in the EU, right, <laughs> because they're importing the, um, the pellets from the south, right, the, the southeast United States. So there's actually no carbon counting at all when they actually burn those, those imported wood pellets. Um, and so there's just a ton of um, emissions that we're missing out on counting. Um, so I have, you know, some, some fundamental questions about um, what that means for the EU's claim that they've already met um, their climate targets for 2020. Um, uh, exactly how much, right, has been emitted. And I, I don't think that we have a really good sense of the answer to that question. And it's argued that it is a renewable resource because trees can be replanted and regrown. Coal, I mean, it can come back again. All we need is more dinosaurs and them to die and <laughs> sitting in the earth forever to create coal. But uh, when it comes to wood pellets, how renewable are those trees? How long does it take for uh, forests to regrow and create more wood pellets? Yeah, the estimates are about um, 50 to 100 years, Chuck. So we're, um, we're really uh, talking about something that is not um, renewable in the sense that we would need it to be renewable to save us from the most catastrophic uh, climate impact. So uh, for instance, the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change has already you know, told us over and over again, right, that we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 45% globally, right, by 2030 to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. Um, that's 10 years away, uh, less than 10 years away now. Um, and so the, the idea, right, that, um, that you know, the, the trees that we plant today are that we planted even 10 years ago, right, when this, 10, 11 years ago, when this industry took off, um, would actually be renewable in any kind of way was um, a real farce from the beginning. Um, and I feel like what, what's ended up happening is that we're kind of in a political quagmire about it. Um, this is a path that um, the EU and the UK have taken um, to meet those goals. Um, uh, and despite the sort of growing science um, uh, behind it, right, it's become a political fight rather than a fight about the facts. It just sounds like, to me at least, and tell me if I'm oversimplifying it, has the UK replaced one climate change causing energy source for another? Um, yes. I mean, you know, the, the really interesting thing about it, I think it's almost worse than that <laughs> because um, when you can, the, the benefit, one of the big benefits of using wood pellets was that you could keep the coal incinerator um, infrastructure, right, for coal fire power plants. So often what's happening is that wood pellets are actually just supplementing coal, right? Um, 
So, uh, you know, you can burn wood pellets and coal um, incinerators um, with some retrofits. Um, so it's cheaper, it's a cheaper upfront cost. Um, just, you know, you change out something with your infrastructure and you're good to go. Um, but then that also prolongs coal as an energy source as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's not even replacing um, coal, it's sort of supplementing or sort of partnering um, what they call it co-firing um, coal and uh, wood pellets. Well, there's always been the concern from those who are more bottom line oriented that when we do fight climate change, it's going to hurt the fossil fuel industry. So how much are wood pellets then simply an attempt to save coal companies? Is that the real goal of wood pellets to save the coal industry from its demise due to it causing climate change? Well, I certainly think that um, my understanding um, has been more from the utility side of the equation, which I'm sure, right, is is intimately linked um, to, um, you know, the, the coal industries. Um, so, for instance, Drax, which is um, a major energy supplier in the UK, um, you know, their coal-fired power plants, um, they have um, these wood pellets, of course, and I didn't mention that they, they're heavily subsidized, right, because they're imported. It's a very expensive fuel source, to, um, you know, on top of everything else. Um, and the idea is that, you know, Drax is, um, you know, nervous about going out of business, right, as a utility or being able to actually produce energy at the levels um, that, you know, at the level of demand in the UK, if it doesn't have the kind of subsidies for wood pellets, if it doesn't, um, it can't continue to operate in the same way. So what I, what I feel like, and I, you know, so I can't, um, I didn't go, um, you know, in my research in the direction of what the, uh, the coal industries um, are thinking and their role in all of this. Um, but what I will say is that the decision up front, right, by the EU and the UK to um, continue on this path um, to, you know, to perpetuate, right, the coal-fired power plants and just sort of supplement with these wood pellets means that, um, yeah, they are, right, like upholding um, this, our uh, reliance on fossil fuels uh, for a longer term than is necessary. And really the idea is that um, they, you know, from my understanding um, is that there's still this resistance to spending the, you know, considerable, right, like upfront costs um, of, you know, putting in place actual renewable energies, right, solar, wind, um, um, uh, some forms of hydroelectricity. Um, but, you know, when we think about um, the subsidies um, that <laughs> um, have been um, the ways in which, right, the uh, wood pellet industry has been subsidized with the imports, um, the idea now that policy um, advocates are pushing for uh, in the EU and the UK is to sort of reallocate those subsidies, right, to stop subsidizing this wood pellet industry and to use what you would have used for those subsidies to um, invest in more renewable infrastructures. 
We are speaking with attorney and geographer Daniel Purifoy, who wrote the two-part Scalawag magazine series on wood pellets and their creation here in the United States and export to the EU. You can follow Danielle on Twitter at Danielle Purifoy, and you can find out more about Danielle at DaniellePurifoy.com. And your article, you know, it focuses on the impacts, the direct impacts to the communities in which these uh, wood pellet facilities are created. But I want to ask you a couple other questions more generally about the market, because you bring up some really fascinating ideas. You write, as for the forest impacts, an Inviva spokesperson wrote that Inviva only takes low-grade wood, which is a byproduct of a traditional timber harvest, and that the higher demand for forest products like wood pellets leads to more forest growth. But the NRDC's Richter, the EU-based environmental policy consultant, says the term low-grade wood is business jargon for otherwise healthy trees that are not valuable for the industry, but are very valuable for the planet. Can we save the planet by simply matching how much the planet values everything to how much the market does? If, if, if it doesn't have value to the market, on the market, then it has no value. What happens? I guess that's my bigger question. What happens when we only determine something's value by how the market values it and not how humanity or the planet may give it value? Yeah, we end up with climate change. Um, you know, we this is really so much um, of what's happening with this wood pellet industry is um, just a kind of um, a parable <laughs> of sorts for how we kind of got to climate change to begin with, right? So the um, the the reliance on market value, right, and the use of um, this language, right, of uh, low value wood, right? What does that actually mean and i think people um you know from what you know my understanding is that people really don't uh, people in the eu a lot of folks right don't really understand um that that is business jargon right uh everyday folks don't understand that and they think that oh it's just sort of scrap wood that's already been cut down right not actual trees living trees that are growing and storing carbon for us um and so we really get ourselves into trouble when we um use market logics, right, to, um, to think about how um, uh, in the service of preserving ecosystems, right, um, that is uh, using the same tools uh, that got us here, right, tools and strategies that got us here uh, to begin with um, as the remedy, right. So I think that's a, um, yeah, market, um, market valuation will never get us past um, to where we need to go uh, for mitigating, right, and ultimately reversing climate change. You also quote Richter saying, often these naturally grown forests are cut down and replaced with something that's essentially a plantation, trees and rows, monoculture, one species fairly fast growing, hardly any space between them, sprayed with fertilizers and pesticides pesticides. It's an agricultural crop. You lose the wildlife and biodiversity of what you previously had in a natural forest. Companies still call that a forest, but it's nowhere near what's contained in an actual natural forest. What happens when trees become crops, Danielle? How does that affect their role in fighting climate change and pollution? How does monoculture even affect our fight against climate change and pollution? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, if you go back to kind of really basic climate science, um, so we know that um, one part of um, the, you know, one of the greenhouse gases that we're um, 
that we're fighting, right? People talk about carbon a lot, but they don't talk um, enough about uh, methane and nitrous oxide, which are the other um, other two big uh, greenhouse gases. Um, and nitrous oxide is one of the um, uh, one of the greenhouse uh, gases that's really a part. Um, well, methane as well, part of industrial agriculture, which is what we're talking about here when we talk about planting monocultures. Um, you know, using pesticides and fertilizers. Um, which you have to use in order to sustain a monoculture like that over time um, to keep them, you know, growing and growing because you don't have companion crops, you don't have anything else sort of in the ecosystem that to um, to really support that, um, which is why um, it's it's something that you shouldn't do. Um, but uh, yeah, that's another source, right? It's yet another source of uh, greenhouse gases, right? It's another um, contributor to climate change. It also um, really changes the game. These uh, monocultures really change the game in terms of um, our, our fight against climate change. Um, forests, um, and particularly um, our uh, southern um, bottom um, bottomland hardwood forests, um, things like bald cypress and chestnut oaks and red maples. Um, those are the, the trees that are indigenous right to the southern United States. Um, they're in the areas that are the bottomlands, the areas that are the sort of most um, proximate right to um, our, our coastal areas and um, are, you know, in the areas that are the most vulnerable to climate change. When you cut those uh, forests down and replace them with um, what's typically like a loblolly pine, um, something that's fast growing, pretty skinny, um, not only does it not store, right, um, um, as much carbon, right, as these uh, larger hardwood plants, um, they're not as resilient uh, when a storm hits, right? Um, you know, a cypress tree is, um, is you know, uh, it exists, it's indigenous to the area and it's um, meant to withstand, right? Those sort of storms, um, a loblolly pine is not. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that, and that's just the kind of surface, right? Level kind of impacts, you know, not to mention, um, you know, a variety of other ecosystem impacts that um, I didn't get a chance to go into, but I know are um, a critical part. Um, of the yeah the fallout from um, this this brand of deforestation um, and this kind of farce of an idea of a kind of planting a, um, a labeling a plantation of um, a pine plantation as an actual forest. And you write that Alabama has the third most timberland acreage in the contiguous United forty eight states. Much of it in the form of pine plantations, as you're saying, owned by private absentee landowners disconnected from local residents. All these companies, like Inviva, they come in saying that they're going to create uh, jobs. They're going to help out the local economy. How much do local economies benefit from this process? How much of the profit generated by Alabama pine plantations stays in Alabama? Oh, I would say very little. Um, I don't have exact um, uh, figures on this, but I think, um, you know, one of the things that um, Emily Zucchino, who's with the Dogwood Alliance, has talked about over and over again is about how um, the uh, timber reliant economies right in our uh, in our country, which, you know, um, are, are pretty prevalent in the, the southeast, most prevalent in the southeast, um, are some of the poorest 
um, economically in the country. Um, and you can see that. So I live in North Carolina where there are um, four Inviva um, wood pellet production plants um, and a host of these uh, privately owned uh, forests um, that are being um, forest and pine wood pine uh, plantations um, that are being uh, managed for you know, furniture production, paper production, and these wood pellets most recently. Um, they're all in tier one. All of these wood pellet facilities are in what we call tier one counties in North Carolina. Um, and those are uh, the 40, tier one is sort of 40 of our 100, um, 40 out of our uh, 100 counties. So they're the, the 40 most economically distressed counties um, in our state. And that is a, it's a very similar um, trend in other states um, across the South, including Alabama. Um, and so it's not, and it's not just the, you know, the, the economic distress, right? Because when you build, it's certainly, right, you know, when you build um, extractive industries um, that are, you know, deforesting lands that are, um, uh, you know, creating manufacturing plants um, with high levels of pollution, um, then you're less likely to be able to attract um, more sustainable, right, and cleaner uh, forms of commerce. Um, so that's the environmental impact, but then there are just these enormous, right, like health impacts that are uh, really disproportionately um, affecting uh, communities of color, um, particularly black and indigenous communities um, in the South. So, um, and increasingly Latinx uh, communities in the South as well. Um, so the wood pellet industry, um, you know, emits things like particulate matter, right? Carbon monoxide, smog, right? All those things that contribute to respiratory illness, heart um, conditions um, and cancers. And the, the folks that I um, spoke with really reported, right? From Northampton County, North Carolina, like Belinda Joyner really reported um, that those impacts are vast. And it not only has an impact on, right? Property values, um, it really impacts people's quality of life, right? People can't, uh, go have a cookout, right, um, in their own backyard because there's what's effectively like sawdust in a way. Imagine um, that kind of falling continuously 24-7 on their cars and on their homes. Um, they can't do the things that they used to be able to do and sort of that are the reasons why they live where they live in rural uh, North Carolina. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a hugely, um, uh, you know, impactful industry um, even before you get to the larger questions of climate impacts. And you write that Enviva is building facilities producing significantly larger quantities of wood pellets for export through a deep water marine port and storage silo currently under construction in Pasagula, uh, Mississippi. In each state, the company's pitch remains the same, jobs and economic development. How much investment is going into the world wood pellet industry right now? Because it sounds like they're planning for this to be going on for quite some time. That if they're building a, a deep water port, they're clearly going to be expanding this profit, or this process. It, that takes a lot of capital. So, so how much more are they planning on expanding this? Is this a big part of our future when it comes to energy use? Wood pellet burning, which is can be as bad as coal. Well, I'm. You know, our hope is uh, that there will be some. Um, uh, push back within the the EU and shift um, in the course of um, their um, yeah renewable energy portfolio. Um, they have a new um, 
They have a new uh, set of target, I mean, sorry, climate targets. Um, so 55, now they're trying to reduce greenhouse gases by 55% from 1990 levels by, um, by 2030. And, um, and so there's an opening right now um, to revisit, right? So part of that, part of that new target includes uh, revisiting this question of what is included in the EU's and the UK's uh, renewable energy portfolio. Um, and so it's going to be really important, um, you know, for the advocates to, to push back to take wood pellets off the table. I think the good news is that, um, in a sense, is that uh, in the US, wood pellets have not taken off um, nearly in the same way um, as a, a recognized renewable energy source. So um, the problem is not that we have kind of a rising domestic production um, or a rising production of wood pellets for uh, domestic use. Um, it's really the vast majority of it is, um, in fact, it's like uh, 7.4 million tons, right, that we export um, from the Southeast uh, per year. Um, so, you know, if we, the idea is like, if we can reduce the demand, right, drastically reduce the demand from the EU, then we'll see the slowing um, and perhaps the stoppage, right, of, um, of growth of these wood pellet plants. The other part of this, um, though, is that there are other um, countries like um, Japan and South Korea that are, are now getting into the wood pellet game as a renewable energy source. Um, so there may be um, other places that start to import as well. Um, so that, you know, so that's it's going to be on us within the United States to really turn the tide um, on, on, on that end. And you quote a uh, spokesperson for Enviva, Enviva's uh, Director of Communications and Public Affairs, Maria Moreno, who says that uh, we use state-of-the-art industry-proven air emission controls to reduce emissions from our manufacturing process with at least 95% destruction efficiency. Um, and we are going above and beyond what is required by the law as an industry leader to show our commitment to environmental stewardship in the communities where we live and operate. Is that the worst part, that they are staying within the letter of the rules, regulations, and laws, which means our rules, regulations, and laws suck and are making people really sick? Yeah, I mean, you 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 said it better than I could. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, to, to say that you're exceeding standards when people um, are still suffering from, you know, uh, acute respiratory illnesses and feel unable to really... Um, uh, spend time outside of their home. Um, yeah, really says something to you about the environmental standards. Um, and, you know, what's worse is, you know, in North Carolina, at least, our um, Department of Environmental Quality um, really gave them a pass on this um, environmental justice analysis, which is um, even more kind of a kick in the teeth um, because um, every one of Enviva's plants is within a community of color, um, every single one. And also every single one is within, um, you know, as I said, one of these tier one um, economically distressed counties. Um, so, you know, if that is not um, a kind of environmental injustice or an example of environmental racism, I don't know what is. Um, and so, yeah, we do have, you know, this, this real challenge of, you know, our state regulators, um, not to mention our federal regulators at this moment, um, really, um, you know, 
not holding industries to um, you know standards that are um, high at all, you know, to the point where they can you know boast that they're exceeding standards um, uh, in ways that are still uh, harming uh, harming communities. You write that Enviva got support from Northampton County commissioners before opening the plant in Virginia in 2013. They made the same promises that they made to a Husky, economic development and jobs. But according to the activist joiner, the public hearings for Enviva's permit, organized by the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, were mostly publicized in newspapers and on posters tacked along the road. Not many knew they were happening or understood what was at stake, so there was low attendance. You then quote... Joiner saying, if you really wanted to know what the poster was, you basically had to get out of your car and go look at it. Do you believe in Viva? Do you believe they purposely tried to avoid public oversight? And if the public had known, how do you think they may have reacted, at least according to your conversations with people like uh, Brianna Joyner, or any feelings you may have gotten from uh, talks from other activists? Do you think that if this had actually faced a democratic process, this would have gone through that people do need those jobs that much. Well, this is this is where it gets really complicated. Um, I think that you know the Northampton County site was one of the first um, uh, in Viva built sites um, in uh, actually in the south in the southeast. Um, it was actually or possibly period because. Um, Ahaski was their very first, but I think Northampton County was the second. Um, and yeah, it's always, you know, um, typically within the interest of the industry uh, to um, avoid causing any kind of public stir um, as they're going through the permitting process. Um, unfortunately, um, what we've seen in most recently in um, Robeson County, which is a predominantly Black, Indigenous, Latinx um, county, and the, um, yeah, just it's about 140 miles south um, of Northampton County. Um, you know, the community there um, has been really well organized for a long time. We've been connected with them through the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network for years. Um, and they put up um, an incredible fight, right, against public fight against the wood pellet um, um, industry. And it wasn't this 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 company wasn't in Viva. It was another um, wood pellet manufacturing plant. Um, but, you know, it's still the same uh, regulator. It's still the same permitter, um, our Department of Environmental Quality. And really, despite widespread opposition, right, um, and having the science, right, at this point, right, we're in, we're in 2020, the science is out and it's pretty clear about these impacts, um, you know, they still got their permit. So in some ways, you know, there's a kind of interest <laughs> um, in folks not causing a stir, but ultimately it's up to the state regulators whether they're going to take seriously the concerns put forth by the community. And, you know, to the extent that they do, it's really like, oh, well, you need to report, you know, a little bit something extra or, you know, give us more paperwork. Um, but that doesn't really necessarily translate into meaningful um, improvements, right, uh, um, for the of the impacts to communities. Um, I think the last thing I'll say about it is like, um, you know, what, uh, 
you know, um, folks in Alabama and Mississippi really have been seeing is that um, Inviva has been actually connecting with communities up to a year um, before they actually even go through the permitting process. And so by the time they do it, they're really bought in um, because there's a lot of greenwashing, right, that they can do um, by saying, hey, this is a renewable energy source, right? We're creating green jobs. Um, you're in an economically distressed county. Um, you need jobs. Um, we'll create them and they'll be clean. And, um, you know, when you do that kind of long campaign, um, you know, before there's any sort of public information out about what's about to happen, um, then uh, as we saw in, um, in, I think in Mississippi, Loosedale, Mississippi, once it does happen, once the permitting um, process does go forth and there's a public hearing on it, um, the, op the a lot of people in the community are already bought in. And so there's really, um, people who are in opposition can be labeled as outsiders almost. Um, and folks who don't really have the community's best interests at heart. One last question for you. Uh, I also want to make, just make sure I point out that you make this connection between European colonialism, and it's really frightening when you think about some of the, like one of the towns I think is called Epps, uh, Alabama, where they mm -hmm. are going to be building a new Inviva facility. That was the placement of the biggest fort that I believe was created by the Spanish in their uh, exploration and their colonialism in the South. And it just, it's amazing how it just returns the path of European colonialism to the South, and it's really rather frightening. So people should definitely check out both parts of your writing. We've been speaking with attorney and geographer Danielle Purifoy, who wrote the two-part Scalawag magazine series, Knock on Wood, How Europe's Wood Pellet Appetite Fuels Environmental Racism in the South. And as the wood pellet industry grows across the South and Viva targets Alabama and Mississippi for future expansion. People, you got to check out both these uh, articles. They're really great. You can follow Danielle on Twitter at Danielle Purifoy, and you can find out more about Danielle at DaniellePurifoy.com. One last question for you, Danielle. And I wanted to get back to the direct effect on the community, on the people's lives. And so our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You quote the uh, uh, activist Brianna Joyner saying, when I looked at the officer that was choking George Floyd and he said, I can't breathe, this is the same thing that the industries are doing to our communities. It's fine to have jobs, but give us some jobs that don't kill us. What is the impact on life when the job you have, the job you need to survive, to provide for your family, the only job you can get and the only home you can afford and the only area that is cheap enough for you actually to be able to afford that home, when where you work and the facility you work in and where you live and the home you live in can all kill you and your family. What is life lived like that? Yeah, um, it's devastating. Um, it's extraordinarily stressful. Um, you know, I, um, as you mentioned, you know, I work with the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network, and we are like kind of as we, as it sort of um, suggests, right, a network of community um, based organizations that have all been fighting extractive industry um, and death dealing essentially industry um, for over 20 years now. Um, there's a um, particular um, yeah, there's a particular devastation when, um, especially when these are places that have real, um, as it often is, right, um, serious historic 
um, an ancestral cultural meaning um, for the community. So um, in Northampton County, um, one of the, um, both Belinda Joyner and Silverlene Alston, who's another um, community member who lives just um, less than a mile from uh, Enviva and is really experiencing a lot of the, the, the air pollutants and the dust. Um, both of them are on historic family lands um, that their uh, ancestors right, um, were able to secure for their families uh, after emancipation, right, in some cases. Um, and so these are family lands that have um, been with them for multiple generations and has a lot of um, not just familial, but historic and cultural meaning. Um, and to see those places desecrated, right, um, is an additional stressor. So, you know, more than, um, uh, more than a, you know, a lot of other, you know, um, kinds of fights that you engage in when, when um, you know, your very livelihood, right, and your actual um, ability to live in your own home is impacted by an extractive industry like this. Um, yeah, the, the strain is just immediate and constant, right? There is no escape. Um, and so, you know, this is, you know, uh, you know, when uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, right, defines um, at least part of what racism is, is about um, uh, the premature, the group differentiated vulnerability to premature death, right? Um, it really, that is <laughs> really at its essence, right? It's, it, you know, if you don't, um, if you don't die directly or aren't, you know, more vulnerable to dying directly from the, the pollution, right? Um, the stress will kill you, right? It's the real cumulative impact of um, really not being able to escape the confines and the, and the devastation and the loss um, of um, communities that people have held um, so dear for so long. Danielle, this is absolutely fantastic writing, and I'm so glad that we found out about Scalawag, or at least I found out about Scalawag magazine through your writing, because the writing there is really fantastic. Thank you so much for being on. <clears throat> thank you so much for being on our show, attorney and geographer Daniel Pirafoy wrote the two-part Scalawag magazine series, Knock on Wood, How Europe's Wood Pellet Appetite Fuels Environmental Racism in the South. And as the world, as the wood pellet industry grows across the South and Viva targets Alabama and Mississippi for future expansion. You can follow Danielle on Twitter at Daniel Purifoy, and you can find out more about Danielle at daniellepurifoy.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. This really is excellent writing. Thank you so much, Chuck. Really appreciate the invitation. All right. Take care and enjoy your weekend. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time tomorrow, Fridays, and is podcast at the same place shortly after. This week on Patreon, we are playing our August 2005 interview with Rosanna Barbero, head of the Women's... Agenda for Change, the WAC, the leading advocacy organization for sex workers in Cambodia. The WAC teaches Cambodia's numerous sex workers how to organize and improve their working conditions. The WAC has also helped to create a sex workers union that at the time had claimed 5,000 members. Why are we sharing that interview? Because while I was rummaging through the archives, I stumbled on our talk with Rosanna and I, you know, remembered her being particularly interesting so that's why also on tomorrow's uh, Patreon podcast I'll follow up on our discussion with 
Zhao Wei Wang on Metro Normativity by reading from the Your Opinion section of the Small Town Weekly newspaper I got as a gift subscription to last year because right before today's show, I got the Houghton Lake Resorter and it was delivered and some of the headlines in the Your Opinion section where readers sent in their thoughts on the upcoming election. Here's some of the headlines they're running. America's Last Stand. Please pray for this very serious election. Terrorist enablers will not win. Proud to be a Trump addict, which is a peculiar headline for a newspaper that runs a schedule of all the daily NA and AA meetings that seem to keep the entire community very busy. Other letters were headlined, Election is Socialism versus Capitalism, which it isn't, but I wish it was. And then there were the more religious diatribes, which included, What Would Jesus Say? and We Keep on Sinning. But you can only hear that interview and my attempt at overcoming the rural-urban divide of city dwellers being helpless elites and country folks being useful idiots by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank our newest subscribers on Patreon. Thanks to Alan, Lindsay, Warren, and Matthew. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff shows up with the conclusion of his spiel on spiel, I should say, on class consciousness. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have any more responses to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. This week's question from hell is what will fall along with the autumn leaves. What will fall along with the autumn leaves? Aaron B. says, mosquitoes. Sean Adam says, our traditional quadrennial drop in national IQ as we defend different levels and styles of evil. P.S. I hope I used quadrennial correctly. I googled occurring every four years. <laughs> there you uh, go. Jez B. says, stonks. David really? R. says, not capitalism. <laughs> Martin F. says, I hope this year falls into a black hole and is ripped to shreds. Why has 2020 been such a bad year? My friend's grandma died. One of my coworkers committed suicide. COVID happened and I lost my job. The mother of two of my nieces decided to leave their dad for another man. Drama with some of my friends. So yeah, F. 2020. I like how it's hashtag F2020. Chris S. says, whatever remains of the respect my social media friends once held for me. How and much did they ever really hold? You never know. And finally got a bunch of Twitter DM responses that I will read after, Jeffy. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us, but you have to have it in, like, right now, because Jeff Dorchin is about to deliver the moment of truth, and right after then, we'll announce this week's winner. Besides for subscribing to Patreon, there is another way you can support This Is Hell. We are looking for volunteer board operators who can show up for our 10 a.m. daily show here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. If you are interested in being a board operator or do Doing, contributing to the show in any remote way, all you have to do is email me, chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell I know you have. Hefe, on the line. What? Third Wave Class Consciousness, Part 2. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Last week I presented a primitive diagram of recent history from the advent of modern class consciousness in the 19th century to today, dividing mass phenomena redounding from class consciousness into three waves. The first, the classical revolutionary communist events. The second, 
the parallel phenomena of reforming classical revolutionary communism in the East, while fragmented identities, including labor, sought social and economic reforms in the West. And third, the emergent process we find ourselves engaged in at the current moment. I'll remind you that the three waves explanation is a taxonomy of convenience, that no one will agree that there are three waves, or that they contain the phenomena I've crammed into them, that I've trimmed historical conceptual clusters with Occam's razor and smashed them with Bozo's mallet, to form of them an object susceptible to a certain brutish examination, and that quantum physicists do this to subatomic particles all the time and everybody thinks they're super geniuses. We left off with a description of our global economic system as fatally entrenched in past destructive modes of domination, domination of resources, economies, means of production, populations, and the environment. Let's pick up there. We know that we have to stop killing the earth. And from the Pope to a 16-year-old Scandinavian girl, along with armies of scientists, economists, and community activists, all agree that unless capitalism is radically transformed or destroyed, a mass extinction already in progress, along with massive changes in the climate that will certainly disrupt our food supply, and the inability of many millions to remain in their home locales, will change our lives for the worse forever and possibly extinguish them. But we can't ignore the threat that our side might pursue a wrong way of changing capitalism into something new. Right now, cyber capitalism is content to spy on us in order to target us with ads to manipulate and profit from our behavior and thinking. If the Stasi or the KGB had had these tools, they might have used them on people to ferret out deviant thinking and ultimately exterminate whoever they deemed incorrigible. We can't allow the desire for wealth accumulation to dictate our existences anymore. We can no longer allow it to pervert our duties to our communities or our use of land, air, and water, our system of supplying ourselves with food, it's clearly not a choice. Capitalism, as it has existed from its beginning, must end if anything else we care about is to exist in the future. But we can't allow a privileged coterie of revolutionary leaders to abuse truth or dictate behavior, or make possibly poor and destructive decisions about the use of resources. That's why... When I hear straight-up Marxism being bandied around without the danger of tyranny being at all addressed, without the acknowledgement that we need to come up with a real plan, or at least a first principle, or, or even an admitted desire for distributing power as evenly as wealth, I get annoyed. Maybe if we want workers' rule, rule of the people, a classless society that doesn't lie to itself about class, we should aim directly for that and not take a detour through a ruling party of tyrants pitting the professional and proletariat classes against each other through a bureaucratic apparatus. Maybe we can even shoot for what comes next, decentralized socialism, or whatever we decide we want. We need to think about this seriously. Maybe if we address ourselves to the actual form of government and economy we want, I mean, Slavo Zizek doesn't want to grow food. He wants food delivered, he says. Well, I want him to help us grow food sometimes. I don't care how entertaining he is, or at least help prepare it, or help deliver it, 
or maybe just do the dishes a very, very small amount of time out of his day. He might have to teach actual little children. He might have to clean a communal toilet. And I think on some level he knows this. And we just have to be ready for him to weep and moan like a drama queen about scenes in Dr. Zhivago for a little bit. He will find helpers. People like to help. The clothes he wears don't demand much effort. I'm sure he can ask someone nicely to weave him another sweater out of hay or golden retriever fur when the current one wears out. And I understand the desire to reward someone for how smart and entertaining they are. It's a hard gesture to resist reward. It's a way we express our gratitude for what another provides. I'm a little worried that we might just rebuild accumulative capitalism by our own autonomous post-revolutionary selves just out of affection for other people who exhibit strengths and talents that we find admirable and who give the products of their vocations to us. We have to account for that impulse. The binary division between male and female, imposed on us for the convenience of the rulers of a long-forgotten past, is dissolving. And those of us with issues will need to get over them. And we have to account for the fact that there are people of sexual desires that might challenge us, because human sexuality has been so mutilated by decades of materialistic concerns vying for our life energy, while all along we're afraid to experience or even intellectually allow the many ways people can give and receive love and pleasure. We have to account for the feelings of bigotry between groups who've been in relationships of exploitation in the past. And here in the West, the slavery of black people was there when capitalism first took root. Without slavery, it couldn't have taken root. Thus, slavery has major legacy repercussions to this day. A legacy that has to be reckoned with as a real place we're going to be starting from. We have to account for cultural differences and fear of differences and antagonisms built around those differences without losing what joy and beauty can be provided by those differences. We have to think about how we move from this world to the new one, the one we want, the sustainable, equitable, wise, kind one, the one that's honest with itself about power and wealth and continuously corrects for imbalances in their distribution. We have a lot to think about because we know a revolution is coming. The violent right always becomes restless when the people are on the verge of finally putting their foot down. We are in the third wave of class consciousness. I don't know what to call it. I don't know what to call a movement that includes both Thomas Piketty and Laverne Cox harmoniously. Maybe they'd both be into each other. I don't know. And if you don't know the names or can't guess from context the vague social positions of either of the people I'm talking about, I'm sorry. You aren't doing leftism well. And if you only know about one of those two, I would like to suggest that might be a superficial anecdotal indication that we still have a lot of work to do building our whatever we're building here, whatever we're going to call it. I guess the name is the last thing to deal with, but keep it in mind. There's not a lot of time before we'll have to identify ourselves to each other, maybe over field radios. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. 
I read that people in rural areas that are dominated by conservatives and where uh, Trump won, they are giving each other, uh, if they're Biden supporters, they're giving each other a secret hand signal to show each other that they are Biden supporters in rural areas. And so they flash each other the victory or peace sign. And that nauseated me to no level. <laughs> it's like the handmaid's tale but for <laughs> centrist exactly it's like a, <laughs> kind of a white supremacist kind of little hand signal I, what, what are you co-opting mm. that now jeffy lovely to hear your voice up against the clock so i gotta let you go okay stay i will beautiful. stay yes i know attractive <laughs> yeah, stay beautiful live from land stolen from the potawatomi people this is hell alex do you have the rest of the this week's answers to the question from hell uh, just a couple more questions or responses. Question from Hell: What will fall along with the autumn leaves uh, via Twitter, email, DM, all that kind of stuff? Neil C says, "With the leaves falling free, is my life expectancy." Uh, I hope that's the last one I read that rhymes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Flying N says, "I know this is going to get another chuckle, Chuck groan, and doubtfully a Chuck chuckle." But what I can do, I can't censor my inner twelve-year-old. We are both spawned from the gutter. Biden's belligerent and bigoted boner <laughs> okay uh, adam b says susan collins glaciers and those panties alex's mom saves for the really special occasions you know, what 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 is that? Uh, really gonna miss reading these what is that <laughs> uh what's gonna fall along with the autumn leaves time cuck says my drawers it's blumpkin season cosmo says ice cap miles thought of freedom sets free arctic legion poopianus maximus says an asteroid maybe hopefully Fredbo says Jeffrey Tubin's erection eventually, and typical reader classes things back up by saying, the House of Usher. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, the answers I liked the most were Simon saying the tiles that are replaced in my disgusting shower during a lockdown DIY frenzy. Lisa saying everyone's vitamin D levels. Uh, Brian, uh, yeah, Brian saying my serotonin levels. David saying my illusions that after the pandemic, my life will really be all that different than it is right now. Eric Cottons, I wanted to give him the same, the full credit there. His haiku, a haiku, the fall. Autumn leaves will fall. You see, much like dictators, lovely blood red, red orange. That makes this week's winner. I don't know, Alex. You got any favorites? I'll defer to you on that one. I'm gonna go with uh, my serotonin levels from Brian. You have won this week's question, Mel, and you are going to get a new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt. All you have to do is send us your mailing address via Facebook, and we will get that in the mail ASAP. My answer to this week's question from Hell, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? Whatever. Remnant of my innocent I still have left in believing that voting can make a damn bit of difference when the government that supposedly represents me imposes the demands of the wealthy upon us through police violence, creating a society of cruelty and a cult of death thanks everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question mail alex who's on monday's show uh, on monday emma roller will be on to talk about her oh god damn it <laughs> sorry uh, i reached the limit of my free article so i can't read the headline of this article from the New Republic. <laughs> uh, it is how wisconsin became a bastion of white supremacy so you probably need to control c and control v that one so you can get access to that if you're trying to read that one chuck so emma roller will be on to talk about her piece how wisconsin became a bastion of white supremacy from the new republic uh, then on Tuesday, Diana Lind will be on to talk about her book, Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. 
And then uh, Wednesday, which I'd already mentioned, Brett Gustafsson will be on to talk about his book, Bolivia in the Age of Gas, and uh, still working on Thursday. But we will have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And I want to thank everybody who was on. First of all, we start every week's live streaming shows here at thisisell.com with Alex revealing this week's Hangover Cure. And this week's Hangover Cure was Berea broth. That's the goat, uh, goat stew, which is absolutely outstanding. We want to thank all of this week's guests, including journalist Gloria Dickey, who wrote the Guardian story, The Arctic is in a Death Spiral, How Much Longer Will It Exist? Also, thanks to returning guest epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. Thanks to yesterday's guest, artist, writer, and coder Zhao Wei Wang, author of Blockchain Chicken Farm and Other Stories of Tech in China's Countryside. And finally, thanks to today's guest, attorney and geographer Daniel Purifoy, who wrote the two-part Scalawag. Uh, magazine series on wood pellets and the wood pellet industry. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon, where we will be playing our 2005 interview with Rosanna Barbero on the unionizing Cambodian sex workers. And I'll be questioning divisive metronormativity by reading from the Your, Your Opinion section of the Houghton Lake Resorter. Before we go, um, earlier this year, I mentioned that somebody who's a regular at uh, This Is Hell office hours and at parties downstairs uh, had passed away, Fabian Maxi, and I talked about him. I just found out that a few months ago, um, somebody else passed away. And uh, so I just want to say rest in peace to Shelly Fu, who joined us a lot downstairs. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's why sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words. Everybody's stupid, and Shelly believed that. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor, and my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.